0: God, as we come to your word, and these pictures, these simple, small, and yet profound pictures of what your kingdom is like, Lord, may you plant us in the soil of your word, and may you cause your kingdom to take root and to grow in our lives, in this community, and indeed across the face of the earth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Can I get those sermon slides, Jenny? And we'll see how this... uh, See if this is going to be cooperative for me. Yeah, good. Thank you. So some of you may have heard the story of George Muller. Has anyone heard of George Muller? Yep, a few people. Uh, I was actually chatting to someone last week who has a friend who grew up in one of the Muller orphanage homes. Uh, It was interesting to hear his his story, but let me tell you a little bit bit about the Mullers. So George Muller he grew up in a very broken home. So his father was a drunkard and Muller from the age of 10 found himself often living on the streets, stealing to survive. And he was eventually arrested and locked up in prison at at quite a young age. Many years later after serving his sentence while at university, Mullah became a follower of Jesus. And he and his wife uh, had a difficult time in their early lives. They were very poor, and they lost three of their four children to disease and sickness. And in the midst of that heartache, over time they began to take children in off the streets to live with them. Uh, it's, it's said that at one point of time they had 30 children from the streets living in their little home. And what began with bringing in one orphan girl began to grow and grow as more and more children came to live in their home. And moved by the Muller's compassion, people around their area saw and heard what was happening and began to donate money and goods to help them. So much so that the Mullers were able to build their first orphanage in Ashley Downs in England. And in the decades to follow, this movement grew until the Mullers were able to build four orphan homes that could house about 2,000 children at any one time. And it's predicted that over the course of their lifetime, they helped to accommodate and care for over 10,000 children in an era where the few orphanages that did exist in England charged fees that true orphans just could not hope to meet Now, I don't know how that compares to the Muller orphanages of today. This took place in in the mid-19th century. But if, if you had have known George Muller at the age of 10, you could not have possibly imagined what the future would have brought. Indeed, when the Mullers brought the first orphan into their home, I'm sure they had little idea what God would do with their compassion and love and how much that would grow. But what began with a very ordinary person broken humble poor what began with one child welcomed into their home became a movement that shook the social fabric of the Bristol region in England a tiny seed that had been planted in Muller's heart all those many years ago through heartache and grief began to spread and invade and fill. And bless in extraordinary ways. The mustard seed kingdom of God. Almost invisible, small, ordinary, humble, and yet the power that's packed into that one tiny little seed to change the world is quite extraordinary. Our two parables today. Are about the extraordinary smallness, the, the surprising humility of Jesus' kingdom. They tell of a kingdom that doesn't come with a flash or a bang, but in the silent growth of a tiny seed, or in the humble hands of someone kneading yeast through a batch of dough. You know, if you were one of Jesus' audience members as he spoke, these parables. If you were a Jewish person awaiting the coming Messiah and his kingdom, this would have been a pretty surprising parable to hear, I think. Because if you had have asked the typical Jewish person what, what the when it came, if you asked them to describe or give a picture of what it would be like, I wonder what they would have said. Maybe they would have said something like this, the kingdom of God is like... Maybe a, a raging fire that burns all other empires before it, leaving all its enemies in ashes. Maybe that's the picture they would have given. Or, or maybe like a cracking lightning bolt that suddenly descends upon the earth in power and might to smash and destroy all other kingdoms. Or maybe like a mighty army, right chariots, armed and ready to usurp the throne through military strength. I imagine those were the kinds of metaphors and images the average Jewish person was expecting to hear from someone claiming to be the Messiah. But a seed? One of the tiniest seeds people knew of? Or yeast? Have you looked at a bit of yeast lately? Tiny. Barely noticeable. You need to pour a few in your hand before you can really see it. It's not an impressive metaphor at all. If if we got King Charles here to sit at the front and asked him, describe what your kingdom is like, I guarantee he wouldn't say a mustard seed or a bit of yeast. He'd say, Oh, it's amazing. Our empire extends across the commonwealth, across the face of the earth. Jesus says, My kingdom is like a seed, it's like a bit of yeast. A few weeks back, we spoke about how one of the underlying questions that Jesus is answering in Matthew 13 is, why has there been such a mixed, even disappointing response to the message of the kingdom? And again, Jesus is reminding his disciples, this is how the kingdom of God works. You'll need patience, trust, faith to believe even when you can't see. You'll need eyes that can see invisible yeast in dough and ears that can hear the silence of a seed growing. You'll need to believe that the glory of God can be revealed through the most ordinary and humble people. And unless you can accept the humility of God's kingdom, you'll forever be blind to the wonders that are unfolding. So let's take a, a moment to dive into the, the pictures that Jesus gives us, this picture of the mustard seed and the, and the yeasts. So firstly, the kingdom of God, Jesus says, is like a mustard seed that grows into a tree with birds nesting in its shady branches. So this picture would have been, this kind of picture would have been not unfamiliar for those who knew their Hebrew scriptures to, to the audience sitting there, it wasn't just a random picture that he was giving, because at various times the Old Testament uses very similar language to describe kingdoms and kings. So in the <clears throat> book of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, or in fact Nebuchadnezzar himself is described as a beautiful tree, large and strong that provided food for all the creatures, its wood nest in its branches. And in the passage from Ezekiel that we heard just before, we see a prophecy describing this future king or tree who will be planted and grow to become a mighty cedar for birds of all kinds to nest in. So there's a pattern in scripture of kingdoms being described as mighty trees. So when Jesus says, my kingdom is like a tree, people would have understood, yeah, well, Kingdoms and trees, they go together. That, that's a, that's a, they're meant to go together. But there's a twist in Jesus' parable here. He's taking that image and putting a little play on it, twist on it. In, in Ezekiel and Daniel, we're given this picture of mighty cedars, tall and strong, reaching right up to the clouds. Impressive trees. But what tree does Jesus like in his kingdom to? A mustard tree. I've learned a bit about mustard trees in the last week or two, preparing this, but I don't know if you know much about mustard trees, but here's a picture of a mustard tree on the right and a cedar on the left. Now, there's lots of different kinds of mustard trees. Some mustard plants just almost look like dandelions, like weeds. That's probably something like the tree that Jesus was talking about there on the right. Uh, A mustard tree, though... It's not mighty or tall or vast. In some ways, mustard trees, it can be a little bit hard to tell whether they're trees or bushes, in fact. And there's a vast difference between the cedar picture and the picture of a mustard tree. The mustard tree is actually a pretty invasive plant, and in some parts of the world, it's considered a weed. I think Jesus is intentionally subverting people's expectations in this story he's taking a familiar image and twisting it this mighty tree this mighty kingdom you're expecting might be a bit more ordinary and messy and simple than you realize even when fully grown it might not be what you expect so in just one line two lines here in this short parable there's a focus on the kingdom of God growing and spreading and blessing, but in really surprising ordinariness, surprising ways. The second parable gives us the image of yeast being worked through 60 pounds of dough. Now, that's about 27 kilograms of dough. And uh, I'm not exactly sure I be try, try to picture what that looks like. Um, anyone know how much 27 kilograms would be? I'm imagining something like this right so a big heap of dough it would take a lot of work to get the yeast work through all of that by hand it's probably something like en- enough to make over a hundred loaves of bread and as the the woman needs all this dough by hand the yeast just invisibly starts to work its way through the whole 60 pounds And again, I wonder whether there's something a little subversive about this image again, when you think about the audience that Jesus is speaking to. Because bread was a significant feature in Israel's festivals and in their history. Historically and culturally, though, it was unleavened bread, bread without yeast that featured at these festivals. And it was a reminder of how they had to flee Egypt and didn't have enough time to wait for the bread to leaven. So yeast, in fact, was actually completely forbidden during Jewish Holy Week. So I wonder if there's a subtle hint in this story that the kingdom of God is now extending beyond Israel, becoming something bigger. That for the Jewish audience hearing it, it would be a bit strange. Why would you use use yeast of all stories to us? the idea of the kingdom of god being like yeast could have been a little provocative, provocative surprising at least there's similarities between these two pictures the mustard seed and the tree and the yeast and the dough similarities there but this yeast metaphor draws out another sense of the kingdom's nature i think it's a kingdom that is filling and invading and working its way into every nook and cranny of life. So, what's Jesus' point? What's he telling us about the nature of his kingdom? What can we expect when his kingdom be- comes into this world and begins to manifest in our lives? Well, I'd like to explore, explore three things that these parables reveal. Firstly, that Jesus' kingdom is spreading and growing. Secondly, that Jesus' kingdom is filling. And thirdly, that Jesus' kingdom is a kingdom of blessing. It's blessing. So let's look at those three three things in turn. So firstly, Jesus' kingdom is spreading and growing. We've already looked at this in some of the other parables, but Jesus' kingdom is a growing and spreading kingdom. Its nature is to grow and grow. And eventually fill the whole earth and we see that from the very beginning of scripture when humanity is created Adam and Eve are told fill the earth and subdue it take God's blessing from this garden and spread it across the face of the earth it has always been God's plan that his kingdom would grow and spread and we see that in Jesus called to his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations We see it in revelation where we're given this beautiful image of people from every tribe nation and tongue bowing before the throne of god the kingdom of god is reaching and working its way into the most remote towns and villages and people groups on the planet today bit by bit little by little the shadow of this tree is gradually providing shelter across the entire face of the earth. But, but, but I think we're challenged by this passage to understand that the growth of God's kingdom is not just about what we can see with our eyes. God's kingdom is growing and spreading even in ways that are hard to see, maybe, maybe sometimes impossible for us to see. The kingdom doesn't just grow geographically or, or cross-culturally. It grows in every place where the people of God live for their king. So when a follower of Jesus chooses to love their neighbor, chooses to give of themselves for another, chooses to go about their work or their hobbies or their interests in ways that bring blessing to others, Chooses to spend time and energy sitting with another in their grief. Chooses to listen, to love, to pray. When those things happen, the kingdom grows, little by little, bit by bit, in surprising and unexpected ways. Sometimes more like a mustardy weed than a tall, great cedar. But the kingdom is growing. Even here in Springwood and Wynmalee, the kingdom is growing. In the hard soil of Australian society, we talk about it being hard soil. Well, for those who are involved in open church, I think you often see a little bit of a different side of Springwood and Wynmalee. There's a lot of people who want prayer or want to be able to sit in silence and talk to God, who are asking deep questions and seeking where do you see the kingdom of Jesus growing? Or maybe a better question, where is the kingdom of Jesus growing even when you, where you can't see it? And how is God inviting us, you and I, to play a part in the growth of his kingdom? Secondly, Jesus' kingdom is invading and filling. That's a picture of a plant that's overtaking a garden. That's the, the kind of image... I'm drawing upon here and when I use the word invading I want to be careful in using that word obviously in history and in the name of Jesus people have literally invaded other countries in very unkingdom like ways that's not what we're talking about here when we talk about the kingdom of God invading what we're talking about is the fact that God has given us a comprehensive complete story of how the universe works of who we are and of what this world is like. And it's a story that as you come to understand the goodness of it, it touches every part of life so that any other story fades into insignificance in comparison to that story. So just bear that in mind in the the way that I use that word. Now perhaps this isn't quite so obvious in the parables here, but the nature of the plant is that as it grows it begins to take over other plants and in the case of the yeast definitely subtly but surely the yeast begins to infiltrate every ounce of dough until the whole batch is leavened you know in the book of daniel we get this picture of you know nebuchadnezzar's dream of the rock that falls out of the mountain and smashes all other kingdoms to pieces and then grows to be a mountain that fills the whole earth As God's kingdom grows, it overtakes. There's no room for other kingdoms. There's no room for these other lesser stories. But rather than smashing with force, and this is the twist that Jesus gives us, rather than smashing with force like in Daniel, rather than a a swift and sudden usurping of the world's powers, the kingdom Jesus brings is doing this slowly and gently, invading in quiet whispers the nature of jesus kingdom is that it does invade people's hearts it invades into societies and into the ways that we live in every place where the kingdom takes root it confronts and it exposes false idols around us it exposes the things of the world that have captured our hearts and our imaginations, and it exposes things like greed and love of self and the empty chase of happiness and security. And, and eventually it will bring us to the point, if we let the seed grow, of realising that there is not room for anything else. Indeed, what could any other kingdom or any other story offer That is more than the mustard seed kingdom that has taken root. But more more than this, the the kingdom of God is filling completely. And I had this image that came to mind as I was preparing this of the filler you buy from Bunnings. You you, you know, the the no more gaps stuff that as you pump it into the crack, it expands like a pillow until there's no space left. The kingdom of God is a bit like that. As the kingdom begins to take root, we soon find that there's no part of life that is left untouched by the kingdom. The kingdom of God, it begins to take over and ask deep questions, even about the most ordinary parts of life. Because the kingdom of God is not content to let us live with a foot in two kingdoms or to move between the two. It says, if this is the comprehensive, all-encompassing story of the universe, then it must invade and fill and shape every part of life. For those of us who are working, why do you go to work and do what you do in the way that you do it? The kingdom of God might make us ask. Why do you choose to cook and eat meals in the way you do? Could the kingdom of God even shape that very ordinary place? Why do we respond to someone in the way we do when they frustrate us? Is there another way of responding in those moments? Why do we spend money in the way that we do? What loves are driving our choices? What do we live for? Behind every decision and choice we make, there is a story, meaning and purpose driving those decisions. Could the kingdom of Jesus even speak into all of these areas I've mentioned and upend our priorities? Finally, the kingdom of God is blessing. In both of the parables, we're left with this rich picture of blessing. So the mustard tree becomes a place of shade and rest for the birds. Notice it doesn't exist for its own benefit. It's not a selfish kingdom intent on growing and then building fences to keep the birds out to protect its fruit. It grows and expands to be a blessing to others. It's a kingdom that extends blessing out to the world and invites all to come and taste its goodness. In the parables of the yeast, once the yeast has been worked through the whole dough, what will happen as it's baked? The dough will just continue to expand and provide food for hundreds. The kingdom is meant to be offered to others. It is meant to be tasted. I remember our wedding cake, my mum made it and it was this multi-coloured wonky layered cake and she made the little people that sat on top. It was really beautiful but it was such a work of art that we really didn't even want to eat it. We felt almost like we should look and not touch. The kingdom of God is not like that. It invites and says eat, please, please eat. That's what I exist for. So as Jesus brought his kingdom into the flesh and blood, into the dirt of everyday life in Galilee, Samaria and Jerusalem, he brought abundant blessing. And we would expect that to be the case. If Jesus is saying the kingdom has come in me, then we would expect to see these parables in action as Jesus walks and talks and lives. So we find that the kingdom of God is like water turned into wine at a wedding feast, a kingdom of blessing. It's like loaves and fishes being multiplied to feed thousands. It's like the blind and the lame healed and the demon-possessed released. It's like a shamed woman being raised up and honoured at the meal table. It's like a man whose life was all about taking from others, being invited into paradise as he hung from a cross, dying. And the kingdom continues to bless today. We've seen it this past year, as people have gathered around those in deep grief. As people have invited lonely others into their homes at Christmas time. As people have spent countless hours walking through local nursing homes, visiting people who are lonely and sometimes unable to even offer thanks in return. As people have poured countless hours into teaching children or sitting with people and praying with strangers from the street at open church as tradespeople have offered time and energy to help others and use their skills to bless others and the question these parables ask of us invite us to ask is how how might we be communities how might we continue to be a family? how might we as individuals continue to be people characterized by blessing, because we're part of a kingdom that blesses. May we not be a church that puts up fences to protect the fruit of the kingdom, but to be a place that invites all to come and eat and taste that the Lord is good. I want to finish with a poem. And uh, I hope that maybe some of the images from this poem might stick with you this week. I'll read it. I cupped in my hand a tiny seed insignificant, tender, weak I held my breath, I wondered why through this my Lord would speak I gathered together a pinch of yeast like the smallest grains of sand kneading, rolling, throwing, pressing this, the kingdom in my hand I gazed upon the tree that grew My brow furrowed, questions rising. The mighty tree of promise loomed, ordinary and surprising. My eyes closed fast, nose sniffing the air. The aromas filled the room. Myriad loaves of simple bread rose to lift me from my gloom. Thus is the kingdom, Jesus said, to shock and horror and awe, spreading, growing, Filling, blessing, like none that came before. The seed cries out to humble hearts, the yeast to those with naught. The mighty strength of meekness is the way his kingdom's wrought. Tend the garden, knead the dough with dirty hands and knees. Like children come without excuse, for it belongs to such as these. Let's pray <clears throat> Lord may we be captivated again and again and again by the fact that you have brought into this world into our midst your kingdom a way of being in the world that is so different to any other kingdom or any other story. It is a kingdom of such goodness and wonder and surprising ordinariness that many might not see it. Indeed, many of us, though we have heard of this kingdom many, many times, often take it for granted and cease to be surprised at its wonder. Lord, we pray that your spirit would cause us to never lose the wonder of your kingdom and the grace you've poured out in inviting us to be a part of that kingdom. And in response, Lord, may we be people who seek to grow your kingdom, to water your kingdom, to invite others to taste your kingdom, here in Springwood and Winmarley and in all the places you put us.